You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And today our topic is the topic of modern architecture and what it takes to design truly modern structures, to design functional and aesthetic structures, to design buildable structures, and to design, to design with a depth that extends to exterior elements and interior elements of a residence or a commercial structure as well as uh, large-scale urban design, which we'll, we'll touch on later on because uh, much of what you do fits into the context of urban design and not just structural uh, design. So to talk about this subject, we'll focus on the work of Plexus R&D, architecture firm based here in Atlanta, and we'll focus on the careers of my two guests, co-founders of Plexus R&D, Eric Lewitt and Jordan Williams. Welcome to the Business Hour, Eric and Jordan. Thank you. Thank you. So let's uh, jump in with an explanation uh, for why you chose the name Plexus and why you attached R&D with an emphasis on research and development. Uh, Tell me about the name and and tell me about the emphasis on R&D. So... um Early on in our firm, we decided that we wanted to kind of challenge the definition of architecture um, in the sense that it's not just limited to kind of ideas about buildings that are prescribed um, or preconceived. So we decided that our practice would incorporate any research that we deemed interesting. Um, And so the solar plexus is the point in the body where a number of muscles and and, uh, bones come together. So it's an intersection of kind of disparate parts. So that was the impetus for that. And the R&D is a play on research and development. It's actually research and design. Um, So, but it references the R&D industry. Thanks for the uh, the, the, uh, uh, explanation there, or the uh, uh, clarification. And that just, you know, it emphasizes our focus on addressing each new project as an opportunity to kind of learn something, to create something that's unique, that speaks to that project individually. We also wanted to come up with a name that wasn't just like our names. We were perhaps humble or, you know, in some sense we didn't want to put our names on it. It was more about the result, the architecture that we were producing, not necessarily just saying, hey, look at us, we have an architectural firm now. So... Yeah, I, I remember when I uh, formed, uh, uh, formed my first advertising agency, I, uh, I may have gotten a little esoteric at the time. It was Continuum, uh, <laughs> mostly because uh, there were other Spectrum-named uh, uh, media and advertising and marketing firms, but uh, Continuum with two Ms, and uh, some of my clients had fun. They called it Condominium Communications. <laughs> Um, but uh, Plexus, I think that's a, a great explanation for this intersection of critical uh, uh, parts. Um, did you play with Archiplex Plexus at all? Did are any variations on Plexus? You went right to Plexus, right to, and you decided. I think we like the word complexity. It seemed yeah. to come up a lot in the things that we were talking about in school, and and had continued to push into the practice. So. There's a lot of that plex word, yeah. a lot of different things. Yeah. yeah, it would seem to apply because we were talking about the interrelationship, but also the sheer complexity of what you do. Right. Um, and then uh, to have this research and design up front, I know that it's really important to you guys. You are very 
into <clears throat> analyzing um, the location of a structure, the environment surrounding a structure, working with your client to figure out what their needs might be and to gather a lot of information that then goes into the design so you chose to put it right there right up front. There. Yep. Um, when people ask you and uh, let's assume uh, I, I, I oftentimes play th- play this game, and my my listeners know that it, you know it's not the sixty second elevator speech. We're actually at a cocktail party or someplace where we're having an adult beverage. <laughs> um, there might be some truth serum uh, a- as a part of this formula, but also I'm perceived as a guy who could be who's at least interested, and maybe I'm interested because I'm thinking of building a home. So you're going to spend a little bit of time when I say or when I ask, Eric, how would you describe what Plexus does? You know, what, and what, what's your style? Oh, gosh, our style. So I, I definitely think we have kind of a look that's been developed, but it was something that happened over 18, 20 years. We're certainly influenced in school by certain things that we liked. Uh, we, we talked early on about kind of bringing in things outside of architecture to help influence that. We actually went through a phase where we talked about what does ugly architecture look like, where we were challenging ourselves rather than just trying to make pretty things. If we brought enough ideas into it that sort of um, the word heterogeneous was what we looked at, but we brought enough things into it. Does it become ugly or does it become beautiful? So I, I don't think that we have a look other than the, to strive for something that achieves kind of this dissimilarity, things that are full of life, full of energy. And, and uh, Jordan, how do you answer that same question? Because I'm sure your, your answer is somewhat related, but maybe different. Uh, no, it's related. And, um, you know, I think early on maybe messy is a better word than ugly. And it was just trying to look at architecture as something that wasn't completely commodified, where basically if I'm going to do an office building, I know an office building is made of precast concrete panels and ribbon glass windows like the one we're in right now. Right. So it was kind of challenging a process that said rather than having a singular preconceived idea, how do we allow a number of different ideas to come together kind of like the solar plexus and infect one another to a point where they challenge one another and create a conversation. So it produces something that's not static, something that has a life that hopefully when people come to it, they're inspired by it or at least ask questions like, why do I like this? Why do I not like this? Um, So it just engages people at a level that I think most buildings probably don't today. You know, not just complexity for complexity's no. sake, but functionality <coughs> yep. that could be complex, yep. and then how to achieve a balance yep. uh, with not getting too uh, too complex and maintaining s- an aesthetic. Right. Yeah. Yep. I, I I might add that um, uh, listeners can go to www.plexus-architecture.com and follow along. Hopefully, you'll be able to listen to us and look at. You know, you can pull up some examples, some of which we'll be getting to later, and you can see what we're talking about. You will see complexity in balance and uh, <clears throat> and the aesthetic quality of some of the structures. Some of them are more simple, you know, clean lines, not a lot of complexity apparent to the eye, right. um, but really uh, a nice range of design. Um, 
I'm going to turn to, before we start talking about the uh, the structures themselves and <clears throat> more about design, a lot of our listeners are uh, curious about, uh, about par- partnerships. You know, part of this program is profiling businesses, and it might be an entrepreneur or it might be uh, a, a couple of partners. Um, let's go back to, uh, and, and, and actually there's... Uh, some complexity <laughs> to this question, but um, if you read the the bio sections uh, on the website, you'll see that uh, Eric and Jordan share the University of Florida. They share Princeton University, and they share um, a few other firms um, that they both worked at. And uh, at least one institution, Georgia Tech, where they've taught. So you've shared uh, some uh, literal and literal and figurative space together, but not always at the same time. Right. So let's go back to the University of Florida, where you tell me you didn't really know each other, and that was total coincidence. Yeah, Jordan's uh, a year ahead of me at Florida, so we the way they structure the program is that you're not even in the same building, although they're near each other. So there was no real chance, I guess, for us to interact that way. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, so we were both in the same school. Uh, I took a year off between graduate school. I think you took a year off and then also spent some time at uh, Harvard yep. and decided not to continue at Harvard. So we ended up meeting at Princeton when uh, we both went to grad school there. So I think it was obvious at the time that there was some uh, kindred spiritness uh, happening between us. Uh, we liked to play ping pong together. We liked to run through the golf course, play frisbee golf, and things like that. <laughs> uh, so, and we also um, were sarcastic about the same ideas and things. Came from the same background because Florida, Florida is kind of a, what we would call a formalist education. So it's more about the making of things how things go together, how you put them together, what they look like, very much aesthetic. And Princeton was all about talking about architecture. And so it was part of the reason I wanted to go there was to get that other side. Uh, so I think because we both came from that Florida background, we challenged the architecture people the same way. And right. so there was you know a lot of that that was common. Yeah. And how about you, Jordan? Um, tell me about... Uh, the time that you were at Florida, uh, and, and, and it sounds like you may have laid the foundation for a more um, technical background um, with the more conceptual uh, component uh, at Princeton, as well as uh, a few parts in between. Right. Um, but uh, tell me how you, I mean, it sounds like you were on similar brave brainwave lengths early on. Tell me about how you guys came together, and also it wasn't going to be uh, months uh, later that you joined forces. It was going to be years later. So actually, let's pick it up there, Jordan. Okay. Tell us where you uh, uh, went from the program at Princeton and how you guys came together. If we can uh, put our arms around that. All right, I'm going to try to condense this because it is circuitous. So after graduating Princeton, I moved back to Boston where my wife was attending school and worked for five or six years. Um, Eric, in the meantime, ended up settling in Jacksonville, but then Atlanta, and went to work for John Portman and Associates. 
So in, gosh, I don't remember what year, and I'm not going to date myself. Oh, there you did it. Um, (laughs) So my sister was living in Atlanta, and I came down for her wedding and went to see Eric over at John Portman Associates and ended up going out to lunch with Eric and a couple of the principals, I believe, and it turned into an informal interview, after which I got an offer, and my wife and I were ready to get out of Boston because we wanted a warmer climate, so we just said, hey, let's give this a shot, not really having any clear intent to settle in Atlanta for the long term. So there was some sorry to interrupt. There yeah. was some things that we did between yes, yeah, uh, like you were teaching at the Boston Architectural yeah. Center. So you invited me up a couple times yeah. to review student work. We tried to do a competition or two together. So we were we were still connected that time. I was just at a distance. Yeah. So that bond that was formed at Princeton was still uh, yeah. percolating. Yeah. yeah. And um, so you were both at Portman together briefly. Briefly. Yeah. And. Uh, See if we can uh, uh, characterize the time between Portman and Plexus, because you again you didn't uh, form a partnership for no. a while. No, so we bounced around um, in several large firms in Atlanta for a few years, um, and then in 1990, well, in 1998, I basically my wife and I decided we didn't want to stick around in Atlanta, so. I applied for a fellowship to the American Academy in Rome, got it, so we put our house up for sale and basically got rid of all our stuff here in Atlanta, went to Europe, um, and after the fellowship came back and started looking at the West Coast to resettle, um, but unfortunately it was during the dot-com bubble, um, and so we decided we did not want to move to the West Coast just given the economic climate there, ended up in Jacksonville with a firm um, that uh, actually a New England firm that bought a firm in Jacksonville. So I recruited Eric and my wife down there, who's also in the industry. Um, and we worked there for a year, and that's kind of where the germ, the germ of Plexus. Okay, we're going to pick it up uh, right after that uh, germination. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're here with uh, Eric Lewitt. Jordan Williams of Plexus Architecture. We've been talking about many aspects of architecture and their backgrounds. We'll be back to talk with Eric and Jordan right after this break. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. 
These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. We're here with Jordan Williams and Eric Lewitt of the Plexus R&D architecture firm. And we've been talking a little bit about the work of the firm and a little more about Eric's and John, uh, J- Jordan's, pardon me, Jordan's background uh, evolving uh, as young architects. And Jordan, you mentioned there was a program in Rome that, that you were on. It was a fellowship. Right. Uh, and many... Um, Architects might have been influenced in such a way that because you're immersed in uh, classical design, albeit modern structures uh, here and there, if you're in Rome, uh, you are surrounded by uh, columns and pediments, and you could easily have been influenced to to come back and be a a neoclassical designer. But you were not, and you told me that you were influenced sort of in a different way by that environment. Tell us a a little bit about that, because it really is intense. Unless you live there for an extended period of time, which is more than a few days or weeks, you don't realize that it is a very design and modern culture with this deep-rooted classical background. Right. So I, uh, my kind of research program was focused on studying Piranesi's etchings, which kind of contain a lot of double entendre, a lot of kind of contradiction and complexity. And so that was the initial impetus. But I think the time I spent over there, I gained a respect for how cultures that have a kind of long and, and significant history actually tend to embrace modern design in a way that we don't in the United States. We see competing styles is exactly that. They're in competition with one another and they can't coexist, whereas cities that have existed for five, six hundred years, a thousand years have to evolve out of necessity or they don't work. And so you just see this kind of evolution and this respect for design regardless of the language or style. And I think also um, a city like Rome, if you just kind of squint your eyes and focus more on the space and the kind of form of the urban fabric, there's an abstraction to that and a quality to that that, again, most cities in the United States don't have. And so there's so many levels on which you can appreciate that culture and that physical place that exceed the kind of aesthetic style or articulation of the buildings. So I got a lot out of it without necessarily wanting to be a kind of classically driven architect. One very fascinating aspect that I always uh, uh, would experience over and over and over every day was uh, extremely classic structures, sometimes hundreds of years old, 
with ultra modern interiors. Right. Yep. You know, they they the the Europeans <coughs> do a thing, and and the Americans are catching on, but we don't have several hundred years of of uh, uh, old exteriors to convert uh, or to complement with modern interiors. But I'm sure you must have seen some very ultra modern. Uh, furnishings, uh, as well as just space. Yep, I mean, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the museum by Carla Scarpa, um, and it's I'm drawing a blank on it right now. But basically, it's in a you know building that's hundreds and hundreds of years old, but the interior is just this incredible modern installation, and and they coexist. I mean, they do not compete with one another, and I think that just comes from you know having a respect for the past but not necessarily seeing that as something that traps you and puts you in a box, that you can pull principles from that, kind of abstracting it again and not looking at the specific language, understand the concepts and ideas, and then redeploy those in a more contemporary language, and it works. You know, a lot of people don't give a lot of thought, and we won't go down this path too far, but <clears throat> artists uh, of, the, of that period, which would have been a couple of thousand years of evolution of art that then influenced architectural design and and actual fabrication, there were new methods being explored all the time. And when you, if you give it any thought, you know, the, the Greeks were, you know, the, well, we'll go back. The Egyptians had, had not yet learned to ascribe too much detail to the human figure, and that's why you see uh, headdresses that are uh, almost uh, geometrically uh, designed. The Greeks uh, elevated that to to have a certain flow and a dimension of of uh, detail in the muscularity of of uh, the human form, and it was the Romans who took that to a new level. Not only be giving you uh, detail and an anatomy and, and, a, and a, uh, a life energy, but also a lifelessness, right. you know, uh, marble that could look almost supple. Right. Um, that whole evolution of art that also carried over, I mean, it must have been an intense environment to uh, live in and have that influence architecture, the use of molded concrete, you know, the Pantheon right. and, and what Hadrian did yeah. with, with concrete. I mean, that was major technology. Right. So it must have been a really uh, good experience for you. And, 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 and I can tell that the two of you, you're, you're, you're really into the concept aspect of, of what you design. And we, I, I, I touched on it just uh, early in the program about uh, a location. And because you reminded me uh, off the air that uh, a, a location itself could dictate uh, or at least um, lend itself to uh, a particular design so that even before talking with a client, you might look at a neighborhood or a, a part of the city and say, wow, this could work in that space. So, um, Eric, tell us a little bit about uh, about what you learned from looking at a space and also from... Um, Talking with your client about uh, what their needs are and and how you go from that, and we'll then segue to actually designing. Sure, and I might jump to that just in my description, but sure. Uh, I think it's interesting when you when you teach uh, and you give a project to a student, uh, the blank page is kind of an overwhelming, you know, idea to them. To to where do you start, right? And so that idea about context, about site. 
it, it proves to you that unless it's a sightless conceptual project, there is never really a blank page. You're always starting with some criteria. And, and most designers will tell you that the more uh, restrictions, the more uh, kind of uh, things that you have to respect or respond to, the better. Like not having any program, not having any site, not having any clients' wishes or desires, not having your own opinions, those are the things that kill that creativity of design. But having a lot of that, having to react to all those things, that actually gives you a lot of energy, a lot of things to react to. So, like we said, uh, like you mentioned, the, the client coming in has ideas about what they want. Uh, the site has kind of responses that are dictated by it. The, uh, the, the program, what it is that you're actually building, will dictate a lot about how you do what you do. And then you bring in things on, on the outside, things that we call digressions. These are ideas that we may have run across uh, previously that we wanted to carry with us. And a lot of times we'll design something with some feature that we'll keep doing it until we get it built. Because not every design gets um, constructed. You don't get to see the result of it. So you keep doing it over and over until you get to respond to it. Then you react and then you develop it, you iterate it, and you kind of make it better each time. But So there are those things that you bring forward. There are other things that uh, you read about or that somebody mentioned to you that you bring forward uh, and and knit you knit it all together, kind of uh, see how it all plays against each other. And so, Jordan, would it be too simplistic to say that if it's an urban environment and what's surrounding the structure that you'll be designing aren't particularly aesthetic and you don't have any real vistas... Um, versus a space where there's trees or vistas um, that the, the space that, that, that affords um, vegetation and, 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 and a view <coughs> would, would prompt you to maybe design with more glass and maybe terraces, or, or is that is that a, too simplistic? Probably a little too simplistic. So... I don't prefer a more natural setting to an urban setting. Um, I think they offer different opportunities. But an urban setting might not just be the kind of views that are afforded. It might be something about the history of that place. Urban contexts tend to have a lot more of that than a suburban context. So each kind of environment is going to offer different ways of interpreting and kind of reacting to a history or just a sense of beauty. Um, I think just... We have right uh, this weekend, we have three houses on the Modern Architecture Tour, and they're all fairly similar in size, um, but there are three very distinct sites. One is on the Chattahoochee River and had a whole series of issues related to the floodplain requiring the house to be elevated. One is kind of up on a bluff, um, and the third, the site descends down into a kind of ravine. And the three houses definitely clearly evolved around just the challenges of dealing with that natural context and wanting the house to have a sense of being connected and situated. Um, so it really, regardless of whether it's an urban or suburban or you know natural bucolic site, it's really about understanding opportunities um, and keying into those and letting the design evolve to create a stronger connection between place and architecture. We're, uh, we're going to be taking a break, uh, but when we come back, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, a modern um, design show that is uh, taking place this weekend, as yep. a matter of fact. Um, I want to uh, remind uh, 
uh, listeners that they can simply um, Google uh, Atlanta Modern uh, Modern Homes, Modern Designs. Either one will take you to the, the show, and they'll be able to, um, uh, if they participate this week, and see up close some of the, uh, the homes that you've designed. We're here with Eric Lewitt and Jordan Williams. We've been talking about their firm, Plexus R&D. We'll be talking more about architecture. We'll talk a little bit about the show. We'll talk about some specific uh, structures you've designed right after this break. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about antique car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host, and today we're with Eric Lewitt and Jason, or rather, I am saying (laughs) Jason and John. It's uh, uh, easy for me to say uh, Jordan Williams uh, of Plexus Architecture. Plexus R&D architecture, forgive me. Uh, Jason, before the break, we were talking, you mentioned the uh, Atlanta uh, Modern Design Show, yep. uh, which is actually a tour. Uh, you're not going to a single location and seeing elements of modern design. You get to see uh, separate structures. Tell us about how that, um, if, if, if you're aware of how the tour itself evolved, and your participation in tour evolved. So I'm not sure how long the tour's um, been in Atlanta. I know it's at least five or six years. And we had our ha- first house on it four years ago, I believe. Um, and it was something that someone contacted us. It wasn't something that we were seeking to do. 
but it's a great, great venue for people interested in modern architecture because this year I think there are nine homes on the tour, and you literally are allowed to kind of walk, walk in these, you know, private spaces otherwise and see how people live in these modern spaces. Um, so, and it's usually a very diverse kind of representation of design styles, although they're all modern, they're different languages, sizes of house, construction budgets. Um, so for anyone interested in modern architecture, I think it's a great thing to participate in. And and do they m- make it uh, um, uh, public um, what the cost of the house might be uh, so that people actually know those different Some, price I, levels? I, I think if, as long as the owners are willing to divulge that information, it's probably public knowledge. Some owners don't want that to be public knowledge. So I think it's really contingent on each project. Um, what would you think the price range would be, actually? I, I think a lot of listeners would be fascinated to know uh, that it isn't always uh, expense over the top, but that, you know, it's not going to just be, uh, unless you're designing a, a glorified shed, uh, it's more than a couple hundred thousand dollars, but is it uh, bigger than a bread box? Uh, what's 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 the range these days? And not just for your firm. What do you think <coughs> the, the 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 leading edge might be for good modern architecture of maybe a small space? And of course, we know the the high end uh, could be uh, astronomical. But in Atlanta, are we talking um, a few hundred thousand to a few million, or how do we get our arms around that? Um. So with these houses, there are two components. There's the what our builders call the bricks and sticks, which is all of the superstructure and the kind of exterior envelope. And then there's the kind of owner finish selections inside the house. And the owner selections are where the price can range wildly, depending on whether someone needs a specific you know, bathroom faucet that costs $2,500. So I think that given the environment right now to do a kind of compelling modern house, you're probably looking at a minimum of $300 a square foot, and that's a challenge. And it goes upwards, you know, to $1,000 a foot, again, pretty easily depending on those owner choices. Um, Yeah, I don't think we have to worry about uh, blowing away any of our listeners. Uh, We'll be having... Uh, over the next few weeks, I'm going to have um, the folks from Arcways uh, the, on the program. And uh, Arcways uh, designs and builds staircases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I saw the uh, one of the uh, principals up in uh, New York at the Architectural Digest uh, show in Manhattan. And uh, he was just this really nice fellow. And... Um, uh, we'll be talking about um, stairways that could run in excess of a million dollars, you know, uh, two million dollars, uh, uh, you know, and you know, if you have a staircase that is two million dollars, um, that it's probably an opulent home, yes, yeah, <laughs> uh, to, to say the least. Hey, I want to take a little bit of a detour. You guys use the, the, the phrase compelling spatial environments. Tell me about uh, compelling spatial environments. I think, it, I mean, it goes back to our impetus to challenge the notion that buildings are just kind of inert spaces where things happen, like programmatic or functional uh, goals. So 
I know the the buildings that I'm intrigued by, I can basically lose myself in. Um, so when we when I was in Europe for my fellowship, I did a lot of traveling and. You know, I would plan on arriving at a certain project, and that was interesting. I spent an hour photographing it, but lo and behold, you know, three blocks down the street, there's this incredible building that I don't know anything about, but there are just these components of the building that draw you in and engage you, and you want to know why. You, you're trying to understand the kind of systems and, and even how people use these buildings. So I think with our buildings, we try to make them functional and respond to people's kind of needs, but we also want them to be interesting aesthetically. We want them to engage their context in a way that people start to ask questions. So compelling just means that someone walks up to a building and feels compelled to ask a question. Why is it that way? Why do I like this? Why do I not like this? We were uh, criticized when we were in school, I think, specifically at Princeton for creating jungle gym architecture, yeah. meaning that we wanted it to be something that you wanted to climb up and get inside and walk around, and that's the word engaging that Jordan's using. It's uh, it's really about creating an architecture that's not uh, flat, that's not uh, dead, so something that somebody wants to get into and learn more about. Something that's inviting, maybe yeah. seductive. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also interesting that you guys, uh, even though you're de- designing on, on the leading edge of modern, uh, you have a sense of history. Oftentimes, you know that the, the history of the neighborhood or that oh, yeah. part of the city, and uh, and so you're you're designing uh, structures, the structures of tomorrow, today, if you will, but also to be uh, timeless uh, and have uh, a certain endurance. Tell, how do you do that? I, I think it's respecting or having an understanding that what you do today is going to be placed within a continuum. Um, it's, you know, there's a history that precedes you, and hopefully if you design something that has value and can endure, your kind of project will become part of a future history, and people might respond to that. So I live in the Virginia Highlands, and, I, you know, I moved there because it's a when I moved there, it was a really diverse neighborhood. Had a lot of traditional bungalows. There were some modern homes. Just a sense of kind of eclecticism. And people respected that. That's why they lived in the neighborhood. And I know that for the last four years or so, there was a movement to try to get some kind of historical status granted to the neighborhood so that they could implement design covenants. Um, and so I started to read the kind of arguments back and forth. No one liked the big modern homes that were being built because they didn't, they didn't basically repeat the bungalow language. But I'm seeing massive builder homes that are in a traditional language going up everywhere, but they have no sense of scale, no sense of articulation, no sense of addressing the street in a way that creates a connection between the private domestic space and the urban space of the street. So they may look outwardly like they belong there, but they're really bad for the neighborhood in terms of not reinforcing that idea of having a connection to the sidewalk in a more social neighborhood. So I think the language that you execute a design in is almost less important than an understanding of how, again, you're reinforcing patterns about how people live in a neighborhood um, and, and how you reinforce a sense of community and connectedness. Uh, and that has nothing to do with style. Yeah, the whole concept of a punched window is an archaic principle, right? It's something from back when they didn't know how to structure uh, a building so that you can have ribbon glass or full glass. So to build houses today with little punched windows seems to me to be looking backwards instead of forward. 
we, we daylight is a big key for us. We'll probably talk about sustainability coming up in a minute, but uh, having as much natural daylight uh, is, is a great quality that we try to incorporate into everything we do. And the small punched window that you find in these big, you know, builder homes um, is just, you know, totally antithetical to that, the way that we live today. Tell the listeners what you mean by punched window. Um, a, a rectangular, small format window that's in a large masonry or solid wall. Kind of a framed, uh, right. discreet window. Um are we seeing any small homes uh, yet in Atlanta? And what do you guys think of the small home movement? And w- would you ever design a, a, a small home yourselves? Um, which uh, I think would be an interesting challenge, but I bet you guys could do- design one. Because I've seen a few that look pretty modern, and yep. uh, I think you guys could uh, design one as well as anyone. So we're doing micro-apartment units right now that Eric can talk about. Yeah, we're seeing that evolution to the idea of smaller format um, for a lot of different reasons, but it, it is an interesting challenge. I love the idea of the micro unit or the small house um, if it fits into the environment well. Yeah. So uh, the kit house, the idea of that is really intriguing. To be able to build it off-site and then drop it in seems to offer a lot of value, uh, but you know, if these are all new things. They're evolutionary. They're challenging preconceptions so we're all for that are these small townhomes <clears throat> are we talking 500 to 1500 square feet or uh, these are 330 square feet okay so this is truly micro living like know. studio studio apartments mo- modern studio apartments right. they're really challenging the, the way that you live in a space you know small kitchens small um bedrooms and living rooms that are in the same space they just happen <coughs> to convert from one to the other depending upon the need and, and now, and we, we're going to be taking a break in a bit, but we can begin to talk about uh, project concept- conceptualization um, because I know it's, again, it's, it's, uh, we've, we, we touched on it. You know, you've, you've looked at a, a given space, the environment. You are uh, working with your client to understand their needs and wants. Um, and now it's going to be shifting over to actual, um, you're going to go to the drawing board <coughs> or to the computer. <clears throat> uh, tell us about how, that that leap and and um, how project conceptualization comes together. Like, uh, how long would it be between the time that you and I chatted about my new house and we looked at the property, uh, and I said, uh, uh, "Come back to me um, with whatever you think might work." Uh, is that uh, days, weeks, or months? Weeks. Um, just for that initial conceptual, you know, kind of first pass at talking about ideas, it's typically maybe two to four weeks, um, depending on what's going on in the office with other projects. Uh, but it typically, I mean, I think we try to react in a way that's timely. So rather than spending three months putting all of your eggs in one basket and saying, I'm going to develop these ideas and just pray that they all work, um, we tend to work in a more real-time scenario where we put ideas out fairly quickly and have the client react to them. And then from there, either, hey, this is great, it gets reinforced, or explore different directions. You you kind of have to get that initial feedback oh, yeah. from the initial uh, uh, concept. Yep. Uh, 
because you might have someone uh, thinking apple pie or a banana cream pie, and you yep. need to come back with pie yep. uh, somewhere uh, that they can react to. We're here with Eric Lewitt and Jordan Williams of Plexus R&D Architecture. We'll be talking more, and we'll be focusing on the show and some sp- specific uh, structures that they've designed right after this break. On America's Web Radio. Please join us at 4 p.m. on Tuesday afternoons. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend is around town movers. Timothy and the guys recently moved me, and I am and was totally satisfied with a sometimes not-so-fun experience moving. Call Timothy at 770-378-4708 and make it a good move and a good experience. Around town movers for that local or cross-country move. Timothy, around town movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's around town movers. Call them. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. We're here with Eric Lewitt and Jordan Williams of Plexus R&D, the architecture firm based here in Atlanta that is very much on the leading edge of modern design. And we've been talking about how they get to the point where they can design uh, modern structures and what their backgrounds were to uh, that lend themselves to having a mindset for modern design and this weekend uh, as part of uh, the uh, modern design home show you can actually tour some of the the homes that they've built along with some others uh it's uh saturday and sunday and uh i want to jump right in again if any listeners want to go to the www.plexus-architecture.com uh, website, you can pull up some of the homes that we're referring to. And uh, one of them I wanted to talk about is the Rillman. Uh, tell us, how would you begin to describe it if someone did not have uh, the uh, advantage of a visual? How would you describe your Rillman house? So the house, Raman Road is right off of Northside Drive. Um, and which is obviously a busy thoroughfare. And this is the house that's on the kind of upsloping site. So in meeting with the clients, they really wanted to create a place that was really conducive to entertaining um, when they have guests, but also kind of a place where they could get away from the stress of their work lives, 
So we really envisioned it as a retreat or almost like a resort. So the house is kind of a series of pavilions that work around a, a courtyard in the center, which has a really nice pool in it. All of the public spaces open up to the pool. So kind of when you're in the house, you can look, yep, that's it. You can look across, you know, the courtyard and um, just get a sense of connectedness. And then the back of the building, um, one corner of that courtyard dissolves and kind of provides a really nice view of the wooded um, space at the rear yard. So it's really just trying to pull itself away from that kind of chaos of the of Northside Drive, um, even to the point where the garage is completely tucked kind of into the side of the house. You don't even realize that cars interface the building. Um, and as Eric explained earlier, there's a lot of glass, which allows natural light and the views to the landscape to become a critical component of the design. Yeah, I really like this house uh, a lot. Um, I have to say I, I, I like the entire wall of glass, uh, ceiling uh, to floor and, and, and one into the other um, uh, that you have. Uh, it's just a uh, simple, elegant uh, design. Yeah. Um, Tell us about uh, some of the other houses like the uh, McCarran House. Um, how would you describe the McCarran House? So it's it's the McCarran residence is on the Chattahoochee River, um, and so it's in a floodplain, and there are all kinds of code requirements that kind of dictate how you situate a house. Um, basically, you can't have any occupiable space, um, I think, it, within eight feet of the river. So the whole house is elevated up above the site. This is right near the Paces Ferry Bridge. And so we started to look at the structure of that bridge, the concrete buttresses, the kind of structural steel frame for the actual bridge span, and use the language of that bridge to create the piers that the house sit on. So that's an example of how, you know, a pretty old bridge that seemingly has nothing to do with the language of modern architecture became an influence for how we created the piers for this house. So the house sits on a combination of concrete and steel, structural steel um, kind of supports and then transitions to a much more kind of sleek and, and more elegant modern language. Um, but it's also an example of how this process is a partnership between ourselves a great client, and then hopefully also a really good builder. And in this case, everyone on the team had a common set of goals um, and a respect for the project, which made the execution of that project really enjoyable. Um, as you um, uh, enter the property, is the front edge of the house elevated as well as the backside, uh, which would probably be the riverside? Okay, so the, f the front edge... Um, is perceived differently. One of the ideas was we didn't want to just bring people to the site and say, here's the river. So from the front, the house actually looks like it is grounded in a traditional way through the use of a disengaged site wall that really is pulled in front of the house, but from the street it appears to be a part of the house. So as you arrive at the property, it looks like a traditional house that through a stone wall is sitting on the ground. But as you approach it, you start to realize that that's really just a site wall. Um, and so as you engage the house, you be begin to realize that it's actually basically a bridge that floats over the site. So the process of arriving at and understanding how the river impacts the design is something that unfolds over, you know, maybe an hour 
through a po- process of discovery rather than just being kind of hit on the head with it? I would think that this um, would become a, a very, very um, popular approach to lots of structures. I mean, I, there may be listeners out there who l- want to build a home or have a home currently on a body of water and are looking to rebuild. I would think that uh, this um, experience uh, for the firm uh, is going to play well into um, designs just because of rising water and and really yeah. you'll, you'll be a hot commodity uh, soon uh, for building structures um, which are elevated in the most elegant way. It sounds yeah. like this it was an architectural engineering solution right. uh, with uh, an elegant approach uh, visually. Yeah, we drove up and down you know the river and looked at homes that, I mean I grew up in South Florida and you'd have homes that are elevated piers. on piers and look like you just helicoptered in a house and set it on some posts so they don't have that kind of elegant or informed relationship with the site. So we spent time trying to figure out how we would meet these code requirements but give the house a sense of having a really strong connection with the environment. The house also has kind of a more formal front, like Jordan's talking about, where it's it doesn't reveal everything at the beginning. So rather than having all the glass right there on the front, it's a little bit more solid, more private for the residents. And then on the riverside, it, it, it opens itself up completely. I mean, this, of course, would be an example of what I was alluding to earlier, where you had uh, the uh, geography and uh, um, the uh, flora and fauna, the, you know, this, a, a natural setting, which right. is, of course, you. the kind of thing <laughs> you really, it's an aesthetic you want to capture. Yep. And, and a wall of glass would be the way, that, way to do it. Uh, speaking of glass, you have a um, the Cruise and Associates. Yep. Is a firm um, that is, uh, would that be Shambly or Brookhaven? It's right on the edge between Atlanta and Brookhaven. Okay. Yeah. It's, a, it's a really a, a, a beautiful structure. Um, and uh, tell us a little bit of what went into that. And also let's talk about, uh, let's uh, make reference to any sustainability, sustainability aspects uh, of that or any of your other structures. So this is a building um, for um, Cruise and Associates, which is a law firm here in Atlanta. And basically, Ruben Cruz bought this property and built the building for himself. There's a little bit of additional space, um, but I think eventually he'll grow into it. So he's, you know, loves modern architecture, and coincidentally, we're now doing a house for him. Um, and we sat down, and he talked about the notion that he wanted his space to be open, bright. He didn't want a traditional law firm that was clad with heavy wood paneling and everyone's in closed offices feeling disconnected. So it's very much like our homes in, ha- in terms of having a lot of glass, providing natural light. The way that we deal with sustainability isn't from the formal standpoint of pursuing a LEED certification because that is expensive and has become its own industry. We just rely on common sense design principles. So the way that you orient glass to the sun and create overhangs where in the winter it allows warmth to come in, but in the summer the overhang is actually shielding the glass. I mean, these are principles that designers have used for 
centuries. You know, it's sometimes basic thermodynamics yep. as well as where you face the yep. wall of glass. Yep. Uh, in this case, there's a, a lot of glass, uh, but it's broken up with some architectural elements that I think are just very uh, aesthetic. Um, you have this one section that's protruding from the side of the building, which is very interesting all in and of itself. How do you uh, come up with that, the notion of adding something like that to a, a, a design like this? So that's actually the lobby for Cruise & Associates. So the idea was that, you know, this is the first space that people kind of sit down in when they come to Ruben's practice. So the idea that it's actually pushing through the wall that defines the kind of separation between the building and the city was an intentional play. Um, and, and people don't realize that till they get up in the lobby and are sitting there. And maybe they don't realize it at all, but... It also floats above kind of the drive under. Yep. So when you go to drive at the lowest level, as you drive into the garage, that's the element that kind of frames your entrance. Yep. You also do, and I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you are involved in some, uh, what I might call revitalization of structures. Uh, it's a renovation uh, of structures, and the uh, Baltimore Row mm -hmm. uh, project would be a great example uh, again, go online uh, and look to see. Um, and I just uh, have to say that uh, what you've done uh, with some of these um, uh, older structures in, in terms of bringing them up to some um, very today kinds of uh, functionality uh, is uh, a really uh, it's a really beautiful uh, conversion. And uh, I think that you guys design uh, beautiful structures, uh, and you, you put a lot of time into it. I, I think I used the phrase uh, architecture with depth. Uh, I think that applies to, to, to what you do to the nth degree. I think you guys want to uh, think it through and achieve that perfect balance, not going over the edge with complexity, but not being afraid to uh, engage some element of complexity. We're going to close out our program. Um, I feel uh, very fortunate that uh, Eric Lewitt, Jordan Williams, took the time to be on the business hour. I appreciate that you guys uh, came by. Well, we appreciate the opportunity. Us. You've been listening to the business hour here at America's Web Radio. We're on Fridays from 10 to 11 a.m. Have a great weekend. Don't forget about the uh, Modern Design Show. Uh, just Google that, Modern Design Tour Atlanta. It'll get you there. Have a great weekend and a great uh, coming week. We'll see you on the radio and the Internet next week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.